Father, as we come into your presence and we declare those words in song and praise, Lord, we need you. It echoes what, what many churches will sing this morning. Hosanna. Lord, save. Save now. We need you, Lord. There's so many issues within our world. We know that the children of Israel were so troubled by Rome, they would shout, Hosanna. Oh, you who come in the name of the Lord, save now. Deliver us. And it was your intent all along. It was the reason you came, was to deliver us. Not, not from the, the world, not, not from the systems of the world, but deliver us from death, sin. The greatest of all of the things that bind us. And so, Father, as we look to your word, we ask that you would teach us this morning. That when we look to the, the world, when we look to these things and we recognize there's just bondage in so many things. And we ask, Lord, and when there's, there's things that cause us to fear as we look in the world and in its systems, Lord, we're concerned. And so we cry out, Lord, save. Lord, deal with these things. And yet you have a plan. You have a purpose. And, and there's a, a, a message you have for us, Lord. And so, as always, we're asking for ears to hear what your spirit would speak to us, your church, as we cry out, Lord, we need you, we need you, we need you. So desperately do we need you. We need you to open up our understandings, our minds, change our lives, change the way we think, change the way we worship. And we ask these things in Jesus' name and all the saints of God said, Amen. Well, saints, if you would, please open your Bibles to the Gospel of John chapter 20. And our text of all things for Palm Sunday here is verse 32. Now, you know us. We're a little bit different when it comes to these things. And so as we look to this text, I hope you'll understand that there is a reason behind this. That so often when we're in these passages and we come to this area of a celebration, whether it's, it's, it's Easter, whether it's Resurrection Sunday, whether it's Christmas, and it's uniquely how we find this text, and it takes us into a, a deeper understanding of a surface looking at the text. And I believe that that's what the Lord has for us here again this morning. Keep in mind that I'm very aware that in the texts of many of the churches today, is going to be like that of Mark 11, verse 9, where he simply says, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's going to be the text. This is, this is the cry that they said there on Palm Sunday, the triumphal entry. And I think what happens is this, is as they shout the Hosanna, they shout the Hosanna, that, that there's a celebration that he's coming, but understand what the term Hosanna actually means. It's made up of, of two words. The, the, the one is hasha or hoza, we, we call it, which means to, to save. And then the hoza na, hosanna, is to save now. And that was the cry. Help us. Help us. Save now. And I think what happens is we shout the hosanna almost as in a praise. Almost as, oh, welcome, welcome. That's not the term hosanna. Hosanna is save now. 
And I think it's interesting that, that what we see is this, that they are going through this occupying of Rome. And they're, 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 they're fearful of, of one, the, the bondage of Rome. They're, they're fearful of Rome itself because Rome can do anything it wants to do. And they don't have choices when it comes to that. And so as Jesus is coming, much like the children of Israel there in Exodus, where they were in bondage of Egypt, they would say, save now, save now. And this is what they're doing. And I think it's important to recognize that here you have the children of Israel, God's own children there in Jerusalem, and they're saying to God, God, we're in trouble. To be honest with you, how many times do we as Christians think that we're Christians, we shouldn't have any troubles? We're Christians, we shouldn't have suffering. Now, the, the thing is, is that when you come into a right relationship with Christ, you realize, okay, well, my sins are taken away. I know that I'm saved. I know I'm going to heaven. I asked Jesus to come into my heart to be my Lord and Savior. So doesn't that mean that the rest of my life is now I'm just in the field of daisies? And, and then we realize that, that suffering comes. But to be honest with you, there are certain groups within Christendom that do make that declaration that when you are saved, that you should not suffer. Suffering should cease. And here as we look to the children of Israel on Palm Sunday, they're crying out, Hosanna, Lord, save now. That They're recognizing we're suffering. Would you save us? You're now the king. You're, you're the deliverer like Moses was the deliverer. Take out Rome. Throw some plagues on Rome. Deliver us. Free us from this bondage. And I think what's interesting is when we look at the text that we have this morning, we looked at it on Wednesday as we finished up this chapter. But in verse 32, I want you to be aware of what's happening here. It says, the soldiers, John 19, 32, came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who was crucified with him. There are two thieves on the cross. And what happens is this, because it is the time before they go into this feast, they don't want the people staying there on the cross. And so they ask them, can you hasten their deaths? And so what they do is they break the legs. Now, the way that they would break the legs was not a nice way. They would literally take a mallet and they would shatter the bone between the knee and the ankle. They would shatter it. They would take this mallet and shatter the bones. Now, they would do this to the two thieves that are on the cross. But I want you to recognize that there is a passage in the Gospel of Luke, beginning in chapter 20 or in chapter 23, beginning in verse 39. And what this declares is this. Then one of the criminals who were hanged blasphemed him, saying, If you are the Christ, save yourself and us. So he joins the mocking of the chief priest. He joins the mocking of the soldiers. And he adds insult to injury to the king of the Jews, to Jesus Christ. And he makes a statement. He says, listen, if you are the Christ, he says, save yourself and us. 
Now, of course, he doesn't know what he's asking. If Jesus saved himself, what? He couldn't save them. He had to give his life in their stead. But as he was mocking, he says, save yourself. The same term, Hosanna, save now. Save yourself and us. Do this now. But in verse 40, we recognize that the other answering rebuked him, saying, Do you not even fear God, seeing that you are under the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. Do you understand that this thief on the cross recognizes that Jesus Christ is innocent, that he is being killed, and he's done nothing wrong? And then he looks to the Christ, And he humbles himself, and he makes this declaration in verse 42 of Luke 23. Then he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, surely I say to you, you will be with me in paradise. Do you understand that this thief has now received amazingly this incredible grace of God that he is now saved? But I think it's interesting that although he is saved there, where we see now this passage in in John chapter 19, understand that in verse 30, Jesus says it's finished. He gives up his spirit. In verse 30, he dies. And now as Jesus has died, now this thief who is saved is still hanging there on the cross. And now you would think because he's saved, wouldn't God be merciful to him and allow him to die too? But he doesn't. He allows him to go through additional suffering. Now I want you to recognize this saved sinner still suffers in a brutal way at the hands of the Roman soldiers. While he's there suffering, trying to get his breath, suffocating there on his cross... The soldiers come with a mallet, shatter the leg bones, and now he has nothing on which to hold himself up. And so the the fact that he can no longer breathe, that his lungs are being suffocated, he can't even lift himself, and now he goes through the excruciating pain of having his bones shattered and having the weight of them be on those bones while he's suffocating. Even though this man is saved, he's still going through the ramifications and the consequences for past sins. Sometimes we think as sinners who are now saved that we should have no consequences. And yet there's a reality that that here, although God's grace has been bestowed on him, the forgiveness of sin is now upon him. He's now right in the eyes of God. It did not prevent him from suffering further. And I think it's important because what happens is here on Palm Sunday, as the the churches read the text, save now, save now, they're saying, what, stop the suffering, Lord. Would you stop what's going on? Deal with Rome. We're tired of this outward suffering. These things that we're afraid of, can you stop us from being afraid of them? And I think it's an incredible thing here that that we get to look at this passage 
in a way that's a little bit different than most churches. They're all looking like, here comes Christ, celebrate. Well, recognize that what happens, this crowd that is now saying, Hosanna, save now, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, will just, as we're going to look on, on, on you know, just a few days, then we'll say, what, crucify him, crucify him. And that's when we look to the, the Good Friday service that we'll do this Friday at noon. That, that, that's what is declared. They're saying, crucify him. The same one that's saying, Hosanna, will then say, crucify. Do you understand that this crowd, because he's not going to do what, he, they want he, what they want him to do, he's not going to do it. They're like, we don't need you. We're looking for somebody else now. And how often is we in Christians, when, when, when God doesn't deliver us that we, like we want, we say, you know what? <laughs> You're out of here. No longer am I going to give you the throne of my life. But I love the fact that this one thief receives Christ. The soldiers can break his legs. The soldiers can cause him more pain. The soldiers can cause him to die quicker. But the soldiers cannot prevent him this day being with his Lord in paradise. Understand, that's the truth. This is where it all boils down to. So, so often what happens is that, that when you see those, the, the text that, that most churches will be reading today is they're reading, Hosanna, blessed is he comes in the name of the Lord. And so as we're looking to that, eventually we'll get, someone will get to church, but we're, we're looking at this now. <laughs> and, and so as, as we're seeing this, there's a passage, and I want you to be aware of it, the same situation of the Hosannas. And, and it's, it's not found in Mark 11, but it's found in Matthew 21. And there's an important reason why I want you to look at this passage here in Matthew 21. Because when they're declaring in verse 9 the Hosannas, eventually what happens is this. Do they say in verse 9, when the multitude who went before those who followed cried out, saying, Hosanna to the son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest. Remember, save now, save now. They're crying this over and over. And when he'd come into Jerusalem, all the city was moved, saying, who is this? So the multitude said, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth. Now keep in mind that Jesus is coming to do what? He's coming to be their king. So what does he do? Understand that when Jesus comes into Jerusalem, the way the gospel writers declare is this, that he doesn't go to the garrison there in, on the, in the Temple Mount. He doesn't go and deal with Rome. The very first thing he does is this. In verse 12 of Matthew 21, we see when he comes into Jerusalem, Jesus went into the temple of God and drove out all those who bought and sold in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And he said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den in a den of thieves. Then, verse 14, the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. And when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the temple saying, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. 
Do you understand? Oh my goodness. And he said, do you hear what these are saying? And he said to them, have you never heard out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants? You have perfected praise. The children are doing the same thing that the adults were doing, but they're not doing it as he's come into Jerusalem thinking you're going to take on Rome. They do it as he clears out the temple and everyone's coming to him. And the children are saying, save now. See, one is they, they want this outward, this political, and Jesus saying, listen, I've got a work to do in your hearts. I need to prepare a way that you can come to God. And these who were blind and lame, they couldn't come in because of all the money changers. There was corruption there in God's house. And he says, get out of my house. It's supposed to be a house of prayer. And I love the fact that what God does is this, that he recognizes you think you're in, in bondage to Rome, but there's a greater bondage and a greater thing to fear. And that's what? Sin and separation from God. This is the real issue. And so when Jesus comes and he says, save, he says, fine, I'll come in, but I'm going to the temple. And I'm clearing out the temple so that you can come and pray to God, that you can commune with your creator. This is what he desires and I think what's sad is that there's so many churches that say, come Jesus, come Jesus, but they never say where he came. He came to the temple. He drove out the corruption that was there in God's house. He came to save, to seek and to save what? Those who were lost. He didn't come to save them from Rome. He didn't come to save her from that. But what happens is so often we always think that save us from the bondage of the corruption that is in the world. And as they were, you know, the children of Israel were saying, listen, save now, save now. In other words, the same thing that the children of Israel were saying there in Egypt. If you're familiar with the passage, you can jot this down if you're a note taker. But in Exodus chapter 2, what happens is this. In verse 23 through 25, it says, And it happened in the process of time that the king of Egypt died. Then the children of Israel groaned because of the bondage and they cried out. And their cries came up to God because of the bondage. So God heard their groanings and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And God looked upon the children of Israel and acknowledged them. I want you to recognize it here with the children of Israel. They cried out because of bondage. They cry out because they are afraid of this bondage they're afraid of Egypt and I think what, what's what's amazing is this is that the God hears their cries and that's what I love where God said I, I heard your cries do you know that when the children were crying out there Hosanna Hosanna he heard the cries save now save now so he goes to the temple but that's not what they wanted we don't want you to save us from the bondage of sin. I'm okay with the sin. Save me from the outward tribulations that I'm going through. And, and so often, keep in mind that to deliver the children of Israel from Egypt would only take 10 plagues. It would only take 10 events. And that would literally occur within a year. It didn't take long for God to do the work. But to take Egypt out of Israel, that was a longer process. That one took a while. That was 40 years in the wilderness. 
before they could finally get into the promised land. So keep in mind that so often we have this tendency of always wanting to, because we have this outward fear, deliver me from this outward fear. If you guys are understanding, there in the book of Samuel, in 1 Samuel, which is where we're going to be teaching eventually as we get through the Gospel of John. In chapter 20, David learns that Saul wants to kill him. And, and so he, he does. He, he, he recognizes Saul is trying to kill me. Saul wants to kill me. I got to get out of here. And eventually as he's fleeing from Saul because he's afraid of Saul... We come to a point there in the next chapter in 1 Samuel chapter 21 as he's afraid of Saul and freeing from Saul. He actually runs into and goes to Achish, the king of the Philistines. So I don't know if you recognize, he jumped out of the fire, frying pan into the fire. He's fleeing from the king of Israel He's fleeing from King Saul, and then he goes to the king of the Philistines. And while he's there, I want to share with you just a little bit of of a situation because I want to share what David does when he writes directly after that. Because when we look at 1 Samuel 21, verses 10 through 15, when David leaves, he writes Psalm 34, which is a beautiful psalm. We're going to look at that in just a moment. But let me read to you what David recognizes when he jumps from leaving Saul, who he's afraid of, to now going to the king of Philistines. And when David arose and he fled that day from before Saul, he went to Achish, the king of Gath. So in 1 Samuel 21, verse 11, then the servants of Achish, the servants of Achish said to him, is this not David, the king of the land? Did they not sing of him to one another? Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands. Listen, the man who is before you now has killed tens of thousands of Philistines. What do you want to do to him? Well, at that point, when, when David took these words to heart, when he said David has slain his tens of thousands, now all of a sudden he's realized, oh, wait, wait, <laughs> this is a bad place to be. So he took the words to heart. He was very much afraid of Achish, king of Gath. So now he's terrified. What do I do? I'm here. So verse 13, he changed his behavior before and pretended madness in their hands. Scratched on the doors of the gate, let saliva fall down on his beard. And Achish said to his servants, look. You see the man is insane. Why have you brought him to me? Have I a need of a madman that you have brought this fellow to play the madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? And then in chapter 22, David therefore departed from there and escaped. We see here that David, he's absolutely terribly afraid. First he's afraid of Saul, then he goes to Achish. Now he's afraid of Achish. And what he does is this. When he leaves, he pens Psalm 34. If you would, turn in your Bible to Psalm 34 so you can follow along to just a couple of things with me. And 
If in your Bible you have a Bible like mine, there's a header that's right there above the psalm. And so in my Bible, it says a psalm of David when he pretended madness before Abimelech who drove him away and he departed. So we see that this is when David writes this psalm. And as he makes this statement, as he writes this psalm, I want you to understand that there's a, a point where he says, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul shall make its boast in the Lord. The humble shall hear of it and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. And now he says this, and this is key here in verse four. I sought the Lord and he heard me and he delivered me from all my fears. I love this passage. I sought the Lord and he heard me and he delivered me from all my fears. I do believe that you could say to the children of Israel there as they cried out to the Lord there in Exodus, that they sought the Lord and he heard them and he delivered them out of all their fears. The children of Israel, they're on Palm Sunday saying, Hosanna, save now. I do believe that they sought the Lord and he heard them and he's going to deliver them out of all their fears. See, there, there, there's an issue that we have and when it comes to the, the fears. Verse 6 makes this statement. The poor man cried out and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. Now, there's two distinct things. One is save me from the fears and save me from the troubles. And what happens is this, that, that, that God is eventually going to say through David that I am going to hear you. David says, I know you hear me. I know you're going to deliver me from my fears. I know you're going to deliver me from my troubles. But in verse 7 and 8 of this psalm, it makes this statement, the angel of the Lord encamps upon all those who fears him and delivers them, talks about deliverance, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good, blessed is the man who trusts in him. And then in verse 9, he says this, oh, fear the Lord, oh, fear the Lord, you his saints. And there is no want to those who fear him. I want you to understand that here he's talking about, I want you to change one fear to another. I want you to fear the, change the fear that you have for all these other things to a fear for me. Now, now, now recognize that, the, that God, when he delivers, he says this, I'm, I want you to, to recognize that I'm going to deliver you from one fear, but I want to command you to have another fear. And this is unique. This is interesting. A lot of times what happens is this, that, that people are struggling. What does it mean to fear God? And I think it's important to, to come to grips with what this truth is because maturity in Christ moves us from the fear of the outward things and the events that would cause us to fear outwardly. But maturity causes us to move to an inward and, and, and to a place that, that, that we fear 
God. And, and what, what I mean by that is that you're, we no longer have this fear of looking to the Lord to recognize that you are awesome, you are powerful, you are a God of judgment, but at the same time, amazingly, you are a God who does what? You call me to seek you. But I, I don't discount all those other things that he's showing me. Let, me. let me try to explain this. What he's doing is he's intertwining here in verse 8. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Do you understand? You're, 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 you're now connecting on the level that I, I know this God who... It says, blessed is the man who trusts him. Oh, fear the Lord, you saints. This God that you fear, this God that you trust, although you have this fear of him, this awe, this reverence of who he is, what happens is this, that we take our refuge in him. We taste and we see that he's good. Let me, let me try to develop this a little bit. The man who fears the Lord does not... Um, he now desires closeness with this God that he was once terrified of. Think about this. A sinner, before he comes to the Lord, he hears that God does what? He punishes the sinful, and he separates the sinful from him and sends them into hell. Something to be afraid of. This is a God who deals with sin in a very radical way. You hear of Sodom and Gomorrah. He deals with sin in a radical way. You see him destroy an entire army of Egyptians and the Pharaoh, and he conquers this most powerful nation at the time. And he does so in what? And Israel doesn't lift a finger. As they come into the promised land, here's Jericho, the big building standing before them. What do they do? They just march around. That's all they do. And then God does something amazing. God destroys this incredible city. He destroys the army of the Egyptians. And understand that what happens is we desire a closeness with this God that the world fears. When the people there in the land of Canaan heard that God was bringing the children of Israel, it says their hearts melted within them. They were terrified. And what happens is, is we desire closeness with God. We no longer find him unapproachable. Now, to the world, they find him unapproachable. And what happens is, is the Lord's glory and his power and his wisdom and his justice and his mercy are all attributes that, that literally are so far beyond our comprehension. That what it does is this. So amazingly, it creates in us this awe, this wonder of just, just who this God is. And although all of these attributes bring about an aspect of God that we say, what? This is your glory, Lord. When I look at your mercy, I look at your justice, I look at all these, and it's to your glory, keep in mind that, that all of these things where the world fears, his justice and his wrath and his power, they've now become what? They've now become precious to us. See, when, when it comes to fear of the Lord, what happens is this, that, that all the things that, that, that make us stand in awe, that, that would cause us to be fearful to God because of faith and because we have experienced his love and mercy now tastes good to us. And we now see goodness. The man of faith 
who walks in obedience, knows that the God who fights against sinners now fights for him. Isn't that amazing? The same thing that would cause fear to the sinner now causes faith and, and, and I taste and I see that you're good. I used to fear the fighting when it was against me, but now it's for me. Do you understand? Now I, I'm in fear of God. I know how powerful he is. I know his attributes, but no longer is it this fear of terror. But now that fear, I taste it and I see that it's good. It's absolutely an amazing thing that the man of faith who walks in obedience knows that the God who now punishes sinners is the same God that protects him. The same God that nothing can prevent him from punishing you now becomes the same strength that nothing can stop him from protecting us. Do you understand how the fear of God towards sinners now becomes this, this tasting and seeing that he's good? When I know his power and how he displays the power, one is punishment to the sinner, one is protection to me. The man of faith who walks in obedience knows that God will take away from the sinner. The sinner says, I'm going to take this, I'm going to take this. God says, you're not going to have anything. Keep in mind, remember Babylon? They accumulated everything they could. And what happened? One night, it's all gone. Took it all away. And what happens is that we who walk in faith, we realize that God who takes away from sinners now does what? He provides for us. That rather than taking away, God says, here, I'm going to give to you. I'm going to give to you. God owns a cattle on a thousand hill. He constantly provides for us. He provides for us in ways that are uncomprehensible. And when you realize who this God is that, that can give and take away, there's a fear when he takes away, but there's what? There's tasting and seeing when he's good when he gives. But it's the same God who does both. And, and I think it's absolutely amazing that a man of faith who walks in obedience knows that the, the God sinner's fear condemns them is the same God who forgives us who takes away all condemnation. Isn't that amazing? That the sinner knows this God is going to condemn me. This God is going to judge me. And the, the sinner on the cross said what? I know you're the God who, who can condemn. I know you're the God who judges. But I also know this, that you can be the God who forgives. Do you realize that? The same thing that causes fear, this God who has the authority and right to condemn and his justice to condemn now forgives. But he does so what? With truth and justice. Because he allows our kinsman redeemer. God himself becomes a man, identifies with sinful man, is born into the flesh. And then he then takes our sins upon himself on the cross. He pays them in full. We receive his gift. And God looks at us and says, well, all your sins are paid in full. Well, listen, should Lowell pay for this sin? No, it's been paid for already. Should you pay for your sins? No, they've been paid for already. 2,000 years ago, Jesus said it was finished. And I think it's absolutely amazing that what we recognize is as, as sinners look to this God and they are terrified of his wrath, we look to the same God and we are amazed by his love. Same God 
The same thing that, that when it comes to sin, wrath had to be poured out upon sin. But you know what? For us who've received Jesus Christ, the wrath was poured out upon his son. God took the wrath upon himself so that he could now give to us his love. And, and I, I think it's so amazing that the sinners who are so terrified that they would be the object of his wrath and hatred, that, that we now, we look to his, we are the object of what? His love and his goodness and his mercy. And, and we taste and we see that he is good. So recognize that, that what begins to happen is this, that, that, that faith has made this terrifying God absolutely beautiful and safe. Do you recognize that? The, this, the sinner who's afraid of the wrath of Sodom and Gomorrah, we realize that God is the one who, what, like the angels who pull out Lot, says, this wrath is not for you. And I think it's so important that when it comes to the fear that we have of the world and all those things, realize that there is the greatest fear that you should have. There is one fear that's greater than the, 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 the government imposing its will upon you, the you know, society doing this to you. And this is the, the fear that you should fear more than anything else. And where you should fear God and his justice and his wrath is this the fear of separation from God forever and ever because of your sin. That's what you should fear. And that's why when they said, save now, save now, they said, deliver us from Rome. He said, no, I got a deeper, deeper work. I got to save you from your sins. And this is where he comes. And I love it because the same God that is absolutely terrifying is beautiful and safe. If you're familiar with the book of Exodus, there are two passages found in chapters 19 and 20. And if on your own, just kind of go through them and you'll realize when the children of Israel meet with God for the first time, God comes down upon a mountain. And they're upon a mountain. This is how God reveals himself. The whole mountain, the entire mountain is filled with smoke. And there is quaking. And there is shaking, and there is this loud trumpet blast. And so the people of Israel, they go to Moses and they say, nope, <laughs> you go there, we'll stay here. You hear from this God who's terrifying and all-powerful, you hear from, we'll hear from you. Isn't that amazing? that they saw the awesome power of God and wanted nothing to do with it, and yet Moses saw it what? He knows there's something beautiful about God. He once saw God as a burning bush. The same God, the same glory. He sees it. Now, they were witnessing the glory of God in a terrifying way. And this same Moses that would go up into that cloud, into the quaking and, and the shaking and the trumpet blast and the thundering that was going on there in the mountain, that the people said, we don't want to come anywhere near that. This Moses would come to God in the 32nd and 33rd chapter of Exodus and say, God, would you show me your glory? Would you show me an even deeper sense of your glory? I understand this, this terrifying awesome power of your glory. Could you show me a more intimate side? And God said, oh yeah, I will. 
what I'm going to do is I'm going to take you and I'm going to put you in a rock. I'm going to cover you with my hand. I'm going to pass by. You're going to see my afterglory. And I'm going to declare the name of the Lord. I'm going to give you to you my character. Merciful. Long-suffering. And Moses experiences something about God that he tasted and he saw that he was good. The same God that brought terror. And I think it's important to recognize that what we begin to see is this. That there is fear that we fear. The world and all the things that are happening. I don't know if you can turn on the news and not be a little bit, you know, apprehensive to what's going on in our country, in our world, in our states, in our cities. What's going on there in Israel? What's going on there in Ukraine? What's going on in the world? You look to this and, and there's trepidation. And we say, God, fix it, fix it, fix it. I said, I got a better fix. I got a better fix. Because you don't have to fear that. The one thing that you did have to fear is what I've come to fix. And I, I've come to fix sin. And that, that's the issue. And so what happens is this, that so far, it, it's kind of difficult to comprehend that the God who is both dreadful to the sinner is compassionate to us. And I think this is where we come to. We don't comprehend that the God who has to severely judge sin to us is gentle and is forgiving to the repentant. This is an amazing thing. The God that we don't want to be anywhere in the hands of wrath that says, you're going to be in my hands and no one can snatch you from me. You understand that this is the God who says, fear me, don't, don't forget all of this that you used to have fear of to the sinner, but all of that has turned for your good. That rather than being against you in this power and this justice and this wrath, now I'm for you. That I poured out my wrath upon my son Jesus Christ that you could enter into my love and my mercy, my grace, my gentleness. And I think that this is what happens is that we don't, recognize that the same God that is, is, is so wrathful and punishes the, 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 the guilty and iniquity and sin is yet approachable. You understand that? That those who want to run for him and he's available to us who seek him. He says, seek me while I may be found. Come. And then he says this to you and me. Not, not just flee from the wrath of God, like, like they hide us from the wrath of God and the wrath of the Lamb. Oh, you know, the mountains fall on us, deliver us. But we say what? We want to come boldly into the throne of grace. Do you recognize the difference of fear of the world and the fear of the trepidation of God? But when we come into this unique presence that we taste and see that he is good, make no mistake that this is the same God that sinners are terrified of. It's the same God that the world will, will literally try to hide themselves in, and because of, of who he is. There is a couple things that I want you to recognize when it comes to the godly suffering. And then we'll just wrap up this message. We sometimes wonder, why do the godly suffer? Why, why does God allow suffering? Why did he allow this thief on the cross to suffer? Couldn't have he just simply you know, taken him out? Couldn't he have simply just removed the, you know, and, and said, hey, I'm going to cause you to die so you don't have to suffer anymore. And, and, but he did. He had to go through the break of the legs. He had to go through those things. Why? Because there was a prophecy that needed to be fulfilled that what? Through Christ... 
none of his bones would be broken. It signified the difference between every other person in the entire mountain and Jesus Christ. All those who were crucified with him in Jesus Christ. It was amazing how on, on, on Wednesday we looked at Jesus Christ had already given up his spirit. He was dead. And yet he was still in absolute control of the entire situation. That there was prophecy after prophecy after prophecy after prophecy fulfilled. That blows my mind. Here's a man, he's dead. <laughs> and yet he's in control. That there were people who could break other people's legs, but they couldn't break his. There were people who would pierce him in the side, but pierce nobody else. Because they said, you look upon me whom you pierced. You understand that they were prophetic word, prophetic word, prophetic word that had to be fulfilled. That Jesus fulfilled while he was dead hanging on a cross. Do you understand how in control God is? And understand that if he's that in control that he can do everything while Jesus is dead, everything still happens exactly as God has determined. Do you not think that in your life that you can trust that God's in control? Now, that, that thief who had his legs broken, do you think he thinks God is in control? Well, if God was in control, then, then don't allow my legs to be broken. Understand, these things are for my glory. You, you have sins, you have consequences, things will happen. But understand that when it comes to trying to figure out why do people who are saved suffer, the first thing is this. Make, make a note of this. Sin has consequences. Just, just recognize sin has consequences. In Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 19 Jeremiah makes a statement, says, your own wickedness will correct you. Your own backslidings will rebuke you. Therefore, know, therefore, and see that it is an evil and a bitter thing that you have forsaken the Lord your God, and the fear of me is not in you. Do you understand they didn't have any fear of God? There wasn't a, a, a reverence that God, you are a God who judges sin, and I don't want to come to this place where, where I, I have these consequences of sin. I want to recognize who you are, and I want to come into that place of your glory. Another passage for you to be aware of found in the, the book of Galatians chapter 6. I want to read just a couple of verses to you. It's one that you know, but in Galatians 6 verse 7, 8, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows that, he will also reap. For he who sows to the flesh will the flesh reap corruption, and he who sows to the Spirit will the Spirit reap everlasting life. Understand, sin has consequences. You sow to the flesh. What you sow, you're going to reap. If you sow to the Spirit, you're going to reap what, what he says here, and I love this, everlasting life. And then if you sow to the flesh, you, you, you sow corruption. You're going to reap corruption. And, and, and keep in mind that there are no exceptions to this thing, that what you sow, you reap. Talk to a farmer. When he plants corn, he's going to get corn. When he plants beans, he's going to get beans. What you plant is what you're going to get. And you can't plant and sow to your flesh and expect spiritual fruit. Sin has consequences. So keep in mind that you can be saved and understand this, there are still consequences for sin. That's what we learned through the thief on the cross. David, a man after God's own heart, had an affair with Bathsheba, the wife of one of his mighty men. Killed him, 
killed other Israelites. He thought he got away with it. And eventually, as he thought he got away with it, the prophet Nathan came to him, revealed to him, David, you have sinned, and it is evident that you have sinned. And he makes this statement to David, David, you have to understand, the sword will never leave your house. There is going to be consequences for the rest of your life because of this sin. God still loves you. He's still going to work through you. You're still going to be with him. But this sin has a consequence that will never go away. And there are certain sins that do. Some sins have a minor consequence. Some sins have a greater consequences. And some sins that you may think, there really are no consequences. It's this, because they have not been revealed publicly yet. Make no mistake. If you're thinking you can get away with these things, God will one day say, I'm going to shout it from the mountaintop. You can't hide these things. You, 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 you think you're getting away with it now and you can't repent of it, turn from it, walk. Because eventually all the deeds that we do, they're going to be made known. And, and, and whether it's good or bad, it's going to be made known. And all the good ones say, I want people to know. All the bad ones, please, Lord, don't reveal those things. But you have to understand that like David, there was a consequence that was going to come from his sin. And, and sin has consequences. What you sow, you shall reap. The other thing is this. That God allows these things to come that we would fear to take away the fear of those things. That you no longer have to say, oh, oh that's all that is. Keep in mind so often we have this thing where we fear the enemy, we fear the enemy, we fear the enemy. Oh, the devil, Satan, you're so terrified of his power and everything else. Well, understand that there's going to be a time where God's going to deal with him and all the kings are going to say, they're going to walk and say, is this who we feared? Do you understand? He's going to show you, you don't have to fear this. Fear him, yes, but you don't have to fear these things. You don't have to fear the situations. You don't have to fear those things that are outwardly there. I love how scripture portrays the things that we can fear and the things that we don't have to fear. There in, in the, the, the book of Romans where God begins to so beautifully open up a truth. And I want to read to you just a couple of verses there in Romans chapter 6. But it says this in Romans 6, 6, knowing that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves. You know what I'm saying? You don't have to fear the sin nature anymore. It's been rendered inactive. You don't have to fear these things. The old man was crucified. The old nature was crucified. In verse 14, he says, For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under the law, but under grace. It's absolutely amazing. We don't have to fear those things anymore. I love what, what Peter, remember when he denied the Lord, he feared a servant girl. He was terrified. I, I swear I do not know the man. Afraid of a little servant girl. But in time, what he would do is this. When he would write his epistle, he would make a statement in, in, in chapter 2, verse 17. And first Peter says, fear God. And in, in chapter 1, in the verses like, like 3 through 9, he's going to say, listen, you're, you're kept by God. You don't have to worry about what the world says of you or could, wants to condemn of you. You don't have to worry about those things. And the beautiful thing is when the religious leaders tried to silence Peter and John, they said what? <laughs> Who are you? You tell us it's better to obey God or man. You be the judge. And, and I love the fact that we don't have to fear those things that the world is terrified with. 
Remember there in Daniel chapter 3, we've talked about this the last, a lot the last couple of weeks, where there Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were in the fire. She said, you don't bow down, you're going to go in the fire. That's fine, we'll take the fire. Because God's going to deliver us from your hand, one way or another. Either he's going to deliver us in the fire, he's going to deliver us through the fire, or he's going to deliver us because of the fire. We're okay with that. No matter what, keep in mind that he may deliver us from the fire, but he's definitely going to deliver us from you. <laughs> you don't have to fear anymore. Do you realize they didn't fear, they feared God. And I love the fact how, how Paul, there in Acts chapter 9, remember when he would come to know the Lord, God would do something incredible to Paul. He would make a statement in chapter 9, and let me read to you just two verses, 15 and 16. The Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel, for I will show him how many things he must suffer for my sake. He said, you are going to suffer, Paul. You are going to suffer. Remember what you did as a zealous Jew to the Christians? Guess what? There's other zealous Jews who are going to do this to you. And amazingly, I love what, what, what Paul said. He says, you know what? None of these things move me. Not one of these things moved me. I want to read to you just a couple of things of what he said in Acts chapter 20, verses 18 through 24. Let me just read it to you. And when they'd come to him, they said to him, you know since the first day that I came to Asia and what manner I always lived among you, serving the Lord with all humility and with many tears and trials, which happened to me by the plotting of the Jews, how I kept back nothing that was helpful, but proclaimed it to you, and I taught you publicly from house to house, testifying to the Jews and also to the Greeks, repentance towards God's and faith towards our Lord Jesus Christ. And see now, I go bound in the Spirit to Jerusalem, not knowing the things that will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies in every city, saying that chains and tribulations await me but none of these things move me. And you said, I don't fear that. I fear God. I don't worry about what man can do to me. I put my hands in a God who can protect me or who may allow me to go through these things. But in all these things, I recognize that he's showing me that these things aren't to be feared. I, I love it. Paul went through the tribulations. He went through the chains. And in all that, he used it as an opportunity to proclaim the gospel. When Paul was chained to Roman soldiers, guess what? He, he said, you're a congregation that can't walk out. Let me tell you about my Jesus. And, and, and they were there. Chained to him. Stuck with him. And he used it as an opportunity to proclaim the love of God. The God who he feared, not, not, not Rome whom he didn't. And I think it's so important to direct, recognize that this is what he, he, he allows these outward things so that he can reveal inward insecurities, inward tribulations. See, so often what happens is it's an outward thing that is going to create in me either Reveal anger, reveal fear, reveal frustration, reveal sadness. And God says, I'm using these things so that you don't fear those things, but so that you can recognize what it's bringing up in you. And when I bring this stuff up in you, what I'm going to do is this. You have to let patience have its perfect work. 
and I'll do the things in my time. I'm going to show you, you don't have to fear these things, that, that you just reference me, the God who has the power. And I think it's so important to recognize that these things have no power over me any longer. When someone does something that used to make me angry, it's not going to cause me to be inflamed. When, when something happens that used to cause me to fear, it's no longer causing me to fear. God, you're in control. When something happens that causes me to be, used to cause me to be sad, it's no longer causing me to be sad because what? I'm going to heaven. Do you recognize all these things? And it's so important that these things have no power over you. This world is cursed. There's no escaping it. There's no escaping the tribulations. In this world, you will have tribulations. But in me, you can't have peace. Hey, one you will have, one you can have. And I think it's so important to recognize that. The only blessing is this, that God is going to be with you in every trial. He's going to be with you in every fire. Like Shadrach Meshach, he's going to be with you in the fire. He's going to be with you in the trial. And no one, when he's with you and he's holding you, no one is able to snatch you from his hands. Recognize that this world, he says, is just a blip. It's just here and it's gone. But then you have eternity with him, the eternity that he has. And I think it's so important for us to come to this place of recognizing God. I know, I know that as a Christian, as one who has experienced your grace, has experienced salvation, that there are things in this world that will still, I'll suffer. Some will be because of consequences of sin. I'm going, to, I'm going to sow the flesh. I'm going to reap of the flesh. I know that. And others you're going to put in my life so that I realize I don't have to be afraid of this anymore. These buttons that people used to push that, that created something in me, the buttons don't work. There's a disconnect now because of your spirit, because of your word. That I don't have to give myself into those things. I give myself over to you. That now this God that the sinners and the world is terrified of, I still am in awe of all of that power. But I now see that all that power is no longer against me, but it's for me. I'm tasting and I'm seeing that the Lord is good. And when this thief who had his legs broken was there in paradise with his Lord, none of that mattered. Do you understand? None of it moved him anymore. And that's our hope. Stand on this truth that we cry out over and over again. And I think it is so important. You know, Lord, be with us. Lord, guide us to you. Guide us to power. We want to be saved. We want you to deliver, but deliver us from the sin that's in us. That's what we want. Do the work in us. Clean up this temple, Lord, so that I can come to you in intimacy and without fear and without tribulation. I can still be in awe of you, but I'm going to experience your love and your grace. Amen? Amen. Father, we are so grateful for this word, so grateful for this text. So often we don't always realize why it is that you write the things you do. Why write that these thieves had their legs broken? It was simply so that we could point out, Jesus, yours weren't. You were still in control of everything, even though you were dead. How amazing is that? We're not even in control, and we're alive. And yet, Lord, you're good. You've shown us that you're good. You've shown us that there's a plan and that, that we are in that plan. 
And so work those things out according to your glory. Work it out according to your good, we ask in Jesus' name. And all the saints of God said, amen. Amen.